we got massive massive disinflation i mean really 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 big disinflation and the reason i get excited about that is because yes energy prices are starting to stabilize you know what drove the first major wave of disinflation that we've seen from you know above nine percent to below five percent how did we do that that was driven by supply chain normalization which allowed energy prices sky high energy prices to come down What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, please be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how are we doing today? Uh, I'm doing well, Aaron. I'm doing well. Uh, we got some, some weak inflation reports last week. We're getting some softening economic data this week. Yet earnings are still pretty, pretty good. Stocks have been uh, trending higher, grinding higher, as I like to say. So, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're in good shape. I think markets are in good shape, and I think that the next move here for stocks is going to be a, a pretty big leg higher into the summer. So can't wait to talk about it with you, but feeling pretty optimistic about the outlook over the next, you know, even three months, but definitely six to 12 months. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into all our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcasts. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. And for even more of Luke's Hypergrowth Insights, check out our free report, Five Hypergrowth Stocks to Buy in 2023, available by clicking the link below or in the description below. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. All right, Luke, this week, what I would like to start with again is the macros. Again, big inflation reports last week. You said that they were going to be weak. They were weak. Stocks rallied. Is inflation right. dead? Yeah, I mean, it certainly is starting to feel that way. And I'm, I'm going through my notes here to remind myself of the exact numbers on the inflation reports. They were, they were so big, it was, it was kind of tough to believe. Such big drops. Um, and actually, just right now, as you were doing the intro, I was writing down some numbers from the, the New York Fed uh, business services survey that just came out today for April. And it showed massive declines in the employment index, the wages index, the price paid index, and the price received index. So exactly what the Fed wants to see. But and that, that confirms the data we got last week, which is the inflation reports you talked about. So CPI collapsed by more than 100 basis points on a year-over-year basis. So the year-over-year rate, this is CPI inflation rate, dropped by more than 100 basis points in uh, in March. The uh, PPI inflation rate, producer inflation rate, dropped by more than 200 basis points in March. And the import price inflation rate uh, dropped by more than 400 basis points in uh, in March. So we got massive massive disinflation i mean really 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 big disinflation and the reason i get excited about that is because yes energy prices are starting to stabilize you know what drove the first major wave of disinflation that we've seen from you know above nine percent to below five percent how did we do that that was driven by supply chain normalization, which allowed energy prices, sky high energy prices to come down and sky high food prices to come down. So the first wave of the disinflation cycle, which we've already pretty much completed, supply chain normalization, allowing us to get much lower food inflation and much lower energy inflation, because those are really demand for those things is durable, right? Demand destruction does not really impact those supplies would impact those those items. Those inflation rates have come crashing, crashing lower. And actually, on a lot of them, we have negative inflation year over year. We have deflation year over year on energy specifically, too. Now, yes, energy prices are now starting to stabilize. OPEC Plus had the big production oil cut. So now we're seeing oil prices stabilize around 80. Remember when that happened, we said this is a price stabilizing cut not a price boosting cut. And indeed, what have prices done since that cut? They jumped to 80 and they've flatlined at 80. They've stabilized at 80. So energy prices are not roaring higher, but they're definitely not falling anymore. They've stabilized. Food prices are probably going to start stabilizing as well. So I think that 
there's a there's a mistake, a misconception out there that because what drove the first wave of inflation disinflation is now stabilizing and no longer falling, that inflation is now going to get sticky in this four to five percent range. That is not true. Because this disinflation cycle is going to happen in two ways. The first wave, again, supply chain normalization. The second wave, which is just starting right now, is demand destruction. So we got all of these. What hasn't come down yet? What, what parts of inflation have not come down yet? Well, specifically, housing hasn't come down. Rent or shelter hasn't come down. A lot of the super sticky components, the core components of inflation, the demand sensitive part parts of inflation have not come down yet. But we are starting to see demand destruction. We're seeing the labor market weakening. We're seeing jobless claims rise. We're seeing we're going to see the unemployment rate rise. We're seeing so again going to this New York Fed survey that just came out today, the employment index uh dropped from 6.7 to 0. 0 on the employment index. Why is that significant? It's one of the weakest readings in the past decade. Forget weakest reading the cycle, one of the weakest readings of the past decade. So you're seeing employment measures really start to collapse. You're seeing company layoffs soar. You're seeing challenger job cuts soar. You're seeing companies talk about cost cutting. You're seeing cost cutting become a huge priority. So all of a sudden, you're seeing the labor market start to weaken. When the labor market weakens, demand destruction shows up to the party. So the second wave of disinflation, which is just starting right now, is demand destruction. And that's going to allow us to to continue to see significant disinflation without oil prices coming down further, without gas prices coming down further, without food prices coming down further. It's going to allow us to see inflation through the other line items that haven't disinflated yet, specifically through housing and rent of shelter. So what's really bullish about the CPI report is that we basically cut inflation in half from around 9% to below 5%. We basically cut it in half without the biggest component of CPI, housing, at all disinflating. The inflation rate on housing continues to go up and up and up and up and up every single month. That is the biggest weighting in CPI. I think it's about 35% of CPI. So we've cut inflation in half without the biggest component of inflation, 35% weighting to housing coming down at all. Yet all future indicators of the housing CPI suggest that we're going to start seeing significant disinflation in that metric over the next three to six months. You look at Zillow, you look at Redfin data, you look at that data, you look at listing data, uh, uh, asking price data, the amount of homes going for sale over or, or selling over asking price, you're looking at rent data, all that data, that you can pause that all together. That is a leading indicator of housing CPI. Housing CPI is a lagging indicator. All that has turned over significantly, is collapsing, is going down, 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 down to the right. That means housing CPI is going to go down, 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 down to the right over the next few months. So even with stabilizing oil prices, stabilizing gas prices, if natural gas doesn't continue to plunge to all-time lows, even if those, you know, those commodity prices stabilize in this area, the big destruction you're going to see in housing CPI over the next three to six months is going to continue this disinflation wave. So we drop from 5% to 4% to 3% to 2%. I think this cadence of losing 100 basis points a month on the inflation rate can and will persist over the next few months. Because again, the first wave of disinflation was goods disinflation driven by supply chain normalization. But what have we heard the Fed talk about? What have you heard the Hawks talk about? Well, services inflation is still sticky. Services inflation is still running high. Services inflation, services inflation, services inflation. And that's right. It has been. But now we're entering the second part of the disinflation cycle where services inflation is now going to get destroyed because of demand destruction, while goods disinflation or goods inflation is now going to stabilize at its very normal rates. Across most goods categories, inflation is running minus 2% to plus 2% year over year. That's normal. That's healthy. Goods have already fully normalized in terms of inflation. Services have not. So we need the second wave to really show up, and it is starting to show up at a perfect time via demand destruction. So I'm very bullish on those uh, inflation reports we got last week. I think we're going to continue to see a, a very healthy pace of disinflation over the next few months. And now the key is going to be, okay, can the Fed thread the needle here? Because again, the second wave of disinflation is driven by demand destruction. That means the economy is getting materially weaker. So the Fed has to thread the needle 
and make sure they can continue to kill inflation without outright killing the economy because we're in now that that shaky ground territory, right? Before, they could keep hiking rates because we weren't in shaky ground territory. Now we're in shaky ground territory, which again is good news, bad news. Good news, it's going to kill services inflation and bring inflation back down 2%. Bad news, it risks a recession. So the Fed is in this, you know, they, they have to thread the needle here and they have to be careful. And that's why we're seeing stocks sort of consolidate and grind higher as opposed to just outright soaring because inflation is dying. The reason is inflation is dying because the economy is weakening. So stocks have to stabilize to make sure, okay, can inflation die without the economy dying? If so, then this grind higher turns into a surge higher. If not, this grind higher turns into a big crash. I obviously am in the camp that we can kill inflation without killing the economy. The Fed is going to thread the needle here. We're going to get a soft landing. And therefore, I think the grind higher that we're seeing right now turns into a surge higher into the summer. And that's my read on inflation. And that's why I'm very bullish on what I'm seeing in those numbers. So what what does the Fed do in the next two months in May and June? I know that in the past we've said that likelihood is that will be another small rate hike in May and then a pause in June. Is that still the outlook moving forward? Yeah, so I, I would say rate hike in May is almost uh, definitely locked in place. And then I think a pause in June is also locked in place. So I think one more rate hike in May, 25 basis points, pause in June. What they do after that, I don't know. I think they hold it higher for longer. A lot of people think they immediately turn around in July and cut. I, I, I'm not going to think about that until they get to the pause. Let's get to the pause. And then let's think about what happens after that. But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure, pretty confident in saying that we're going to get 25 in May, pause in June. And that's going to be enough to, to help stocks push higher into the summer. We, we just need that rate hiking campaign to stop because what people have to really understand is, you know, people are trying to draw parallels to historical precedents and you know, previous times before stocks had never bought them before the Fed was done hiking, you know, blah, 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 blah. But the stock market never crashed while the Fed was starting its rate hiking cycle. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that's what we got here is this has been a Fed induced economic slowdown, bigger so more so than any other economic slowdown in the history of the United States, per my knowledge. The Fed purposefully, deliberately slowed a really strong economy to stop inflation. They caused this slowdown. And therefore, because they are the driver of the slowdown, not geopolitics, not a banking crisis, not a housing market collapse, not a pandemic. The Fed caused the slowdown because they are the driver. They're in the driver's seat. That also means they can slam the brake. There's nobody else in the driver's seat right now. It's them. They can slam the brake. They can stop the car from going off the tracks. They can keep it on the tracks. They can guide the economy to a soft landing. So that's why I think this time feels slightly different than previous uh, hiking cycles because it's entirely been driven by the Fed, which means it can mostly be stopped by the Fed as well. And so that's why I think a 25 in May and a pause in June, that pause in June will restabilize economic activity, boost the economic outlook, and significantly help stocks push higher into, into the summer. Now, we're also sprinting into earnings season. And like you said, it looks like stocks are just consolidating ahead of earnings. Two questions here. How important is this earnings season? And two, will it be good enough to push stocks to new 2023 highs? Right. Yeah. So it's all about earnings right now. That's why. So we're consolidating. I mean, it's no coincidence that we've had this big rally off the October lows and we are now kind of flatlining, consolidating at a very critical technical level right before earnings season and the Fed's May meeting. That's not a coincidence. We rallied into this and now it's make or break moment. And I think it's going to be a make moment. And the reason I think that is earnings are probably going to be pretty good. And we talked about this last week. In the first three months of the year, the labor market was resilient. Consumer spending was resilient. That should support those two factors. Those two dynamics should support strong revenues in the first quarter of 2023. So I think we're going to get a lot of revenue beats this quarter. At the same time, what else happened in the first three months of the year? We had a lot of companies announcing you know, some layoffs, announcing cost cuts, reducing this pet project, that pet project, the spending here, spending there. We had a lot of cost cutting going on, a lot of cost cutting. So that should support better than expected margins in the first quarter. Better than expected revenues, better than expected margins, that's better than expected earnings. So I'm pretty confident that Q1 revenues and earnings are going to largely top estimates by a wider than expected margin. So I think you're going to get very, very good numbers for Q1. Now, the question is, what are the guys going to look like? What's the, what's the Q2, Q2 guy going to look like? What's the full year 2023 guy going to look like? 
how are analyst estimates going to respond to that? Well, analyst estimates right now are stabilizing around $218 per share for 2023 on the S&P 500 and $240 per share in 2024 on the S&P 500. Are those numbers going to now turn higher? Is that 218 going to go into 220, 221, 222, 223, 224, 225? Or is it going to go down to 215, 214, 213, 212, 211, 210? That's going to determine what stocks do in response to these earnings. Not necessarily whether or not we get these big beats in Q1, but how are management team is going to guide for the rest of the year. And how is that going to impact the earnings estimate trends? Are we going to go from 218 to 225 or 218 to 210? I think we go from 218 to 225 because I believe management teams are going to say, hey, we had a much better than expected Q1. And Q2, you know, we had the banking crisis, created some uncertainty, but we're still doing pretty well. So I think the guide we gave you at the end of last year we can either confirm that is exactly what's going to happen or, you know, things might actually be a little bit better than what we expected because the, the start of the year was much better than expected. So I think that you're going to get guides that are across the board, either in line with what management teams guided back in the end of uh, 2022 or a little bit better. That's bullish because since the end of 2022, analyst estimates have come down. We were at like 222, 223 on EPS estimates came down to 218. If management teams come out, you know, this quarter and say, hey, you know what, we're keeping those guides, if not improving them, then the 218 number should go back up to 222, 223, even push out to 225. If we do that, then stocks have have the fundamental firepower to push higher because on a fundamental basis, on a valuation basis, we're trading at 18.9 times forward earnings, 18.9 times that 218 estimate. That's a pretty normal multiple. Going back, you know, in the long term, PE multiples have ranged between 16 times and 20 times, depending what time frame you're looking at, past 10 years, since the great financial crisis, uh, since, you know, the early 1990s, past 20 years, past 30 years, depending on what time frame you're looking at, PE multiples, forward PE multiples have ranged between 16 and 20 times. Right now, we're at 18.9 times, call it 19 times, so the upper end of that, of that range, but still within that range. So fairly normal valuations. If EPS estimates go from 218 to 225, 226, maybe up to 230, then that 19 times multiple can come down into 18 times, 17 times while stocks still push higher. It's going to allow for you know stocks to move higher without needing to multiple expansion because you're going to get growth from the EPS side of things. So that's why I think that this earnings season is really, 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 really important because we're at 19 times. We can't get much more P multiple expansion. Treasury yields have been pushing lower, but you know we're at 3.5% and kind of steadying in that area. So what's going to drive the next leg higher in stocks has to be, at least in the short term, earnings estimates have to move higher. So that's why this earnings season is so important. And I, I am optimistic that we can come through. Companies can come through and those EPS estimates can push higher, which pushes stocks higher into the Fed May meeting. And I think that Fed May meeting is going to be pretty good in the fact they're going to say we're going to hide 25 because you know we, we can afford to, but we're not going to say anything about future rate hikes. That's going to be enough to, to get stocks going. And then I think you're going to get more disinflation data in May. Then you're going to get the pause in June. So you get stronger than expected earnings, a pretty bullish Fed meeting, more disinflation data, and then the long overdue and uh, highly anticipated Fed pause. That series of catalysts, I think, sends stocks to new highs, not new all-time highs, but new cycle highs here in 20, in, into the summer. Uh, do you have any favorites going into that Q1 earnings reports? You know, um, I do. I do. I'm not going to exactly say them here. Uh, but there, there are some, I think when you look at sectors, um, some of the sectors that I'm very bullish on, I think digital advertising is having a nice little rebound. It had a good rebound in the first quarter of 2023. So I think the, a lot of digital advertising stocks are going to report some pretty good numbers, much better than feared numbers uh, in Q1. Um, I think automotive stocks are, are struggled in the first quarter, but I think they'll probably get pretty good guides. Not super bullish on that sector, but I think you got to watch those guides. Um, I've noticed an, an uptick in, in streaming um sort of engagement. So I think streaming stocks can have can have a good run here. I think a lot of these stocks that sell software, enterprise software stocks, I think enterprise software spending has been resilient. I think they're ready to go. Semi stocks look pretty strong. Housing stocks look pretty strong. I think these are companies that are benefiting from a, a big turnaround in the global economy and they're gonna the numbers are gonna uh, confirm that. So I'm pretty bullish on on those sectors going into the the first quarter earnings season. Okay. Um, before we move on to specific sectors. Can you comment on market breadth really quickly? I read your research note yesterday, which highlighted market breadth as something to watch for signs of broader market health. 
what are the breath signals telling us today? Right, right. Yeah. So um, one way to look at market breadth is to look at the number of stocks in the S&P 500 that are trading above their 200-day moving averages. Um, right now, we're at 60%, meaning 60% of stocks in the S&P 500 are trading above their 200-day moving averages. In this cycle, in this comeback run, we peaked at around 75% in early February. So around 75% of stocks in uh, the S&P 500 were trading above their 200-day moving averages. That's a very strong reading. It's not great, but it's damn good. When you look at the historical precedence here for breadth in terms of, you know, when bull bear markets turn into bull markets, normally that is corroborated by a breadth reading of over 70%, meaning that when the number, when the percent of S&P 500 stocks trading above their 200-day moving averages jumps above 70%, almost always that is confirmation that the bear market is over and we're entering a new bull market. There were a few, there were two, namely two counter examples to this during the dot-com crash. During the dot-com crash, we had two massive counter trend rallies wherein breadth exceeded 70%, yet it wasn't the end of the bear market. That's why we're in good territory, but not great territory. Great territory on breadth to be above 80%. Never in those two counter-trend rallies in the dot-com crash did breadth get above 80% until the bear market was over. The great financial crisis ended when breadth got above 80%, got above 70%, but definitely above 80%. The COVID-19 crash ended above 70% and above 80%. So 70% is this level where it's like, it looks like, this could confirm from a breadth perspective that the bear market is over. We already breached that. We got to 75. But 80 will be that level that's like, all right, foolproof. You know, this is that bear market is definitely over. So if we get a strong earnings season, you could see we're at 60 now. We went up to 75, came back down to 60. We get a good earnings season and, you know, a bunch of stocks do rally, individual stocks do rally, and you get sympathy rallies with them then you could get that 60% number up to an 80% reading, 82%, 85% reading. If you get that, that would be confirmation from a breadth perspective that the, the bear market is over. So what we're looking at from, from a breadth point of view is things are good, but not great. And great will happen when 80% of S&P 500 stocks are trading above their 200-day moving averages. And you could get that with a multi-week earnings season rally over the next few weeks. So that's what we're looking at from a breadth perspective. We're tracking that very closely. Above 70, nice to see. Getting above 80, that would be great to see. That would be a very big buy signal. And we, we would like to, to get into stocks if that happens, get into stocks more aggressively uh, if and when that happens. So you're, t you're saying we're at about 60% right now. In those two instances that you mentioned where we hit 70 but then dropped, what did we drop to in those two instances in the dot -com cr during the dot-com crash? New, new, cycle, new cycle lows, lows both, both times. Okay. Both, new cycle lows both times. Yeah, both times new cycle lows. Um, now, I, I think you have to take those instances with a grain of salt. A lot of times when you do these historical kind of analyses on, okay, when this happened, bear markets ended. When you do those analyses, the counterexamples that always come up pretty much are during the dot-com <laughs> crash. And that's because of extended valuations mm -hmm. during that time. That We got really, really, really extended on valuations, and we needed to remove a lot of froth from those valuations. Not only that, but the equity risk premium got negative. The spread between the earnings yield and the treasury yield got negative. So we had really rich valuations with really high treasury yields. It made absolutely no sense. So the fact that we had those two counter trend examples in, um, or counter examples in, in 2001, 2002 during the dot com crash. Well, they were also when the S and P 500 was trading about 25 times our forward earnings, right? So right now, like I said, we're trading at 19 times. We're much cheaper than when we were. Uh, during those rallies. And those rallies weren't driven by earnings estimates going lower or really a recession. They were driven by P multiples just being too high. So the why matters here, not just the what. We failed at 70% 70, 70 breadth indicators back in, in, in the dot-com crash. But why did we fail? Because P multiples are, were way too high. 24, 25, 26 times forward earnings, way too high. We don't have that problem today. We don't have P multiples that high. So therefore, I always take the counter trend. Whenever I look at, at these historical analyses and I'm like, oh, God, this happened every single time this signal into the bear market, except for the dot com <laughs> crash. I always go, OK, well, 
valuations, 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 valuations matter. And during the dot com crash, they just they they did they did not make sense. Now on that note, you know the Nasdaq, where the Nasdaq bottomed in terms of P multiple during the dot com crash, is where we bottomed uh, in October twenty twenty two for for the stock market. So for the Nasdaq, so. Um, I think valuations are fully normalized. And again, those dot-com crash counter examples don't hold a ton of weight at the current moment because the valuations are not comparable. Gotcha. Um, actually, uh, one last topic before we go into sectors, the, the Copic curve, uh, ultra rare technical indicator. I'd never heard of it before, right. but you told subscribers that it just flashed a big buy signal last week. What is it, and can you expand on how this affects your outlooks? Yeah, so I actually never heard of this either, and um, you know, I, I did some research into it, discovered it, and um, applied some adjusted parameters to it to, to find a buy signal that that is um, pretty powerful. But the Copic curve was invented, created by a stock market strategist in the nineteen sixties, sixties called Edwin Copic, and. He had this, I mean, the story here is, is maybe not hilarious, but it's, I, I, I find it kind of funny. So he, he went to a priest and he asked the priest, how long does it take to, to get over somebody after they die? Like, how long do you mourn for? And the priest said 11 to 14 months that, you know, the normal person gets over somebody after they're dying is it through the mourning period, usually 11 to 14 months, you know, post-mortem after the death. And so he took that idea and applied it to the stock market saying, okay, investors should get over the market dying about 11 to 14 months after the market dies. And so he created this Copic curve, which is a, a momentum price oscillator that tracks the rate of change of the 11 month moving average and the 14 month moving average of, of stocks to see, okay, when those rate of changes start moving significantly higher then you are in a bear to bull market reversal. When they start moving significantly lower, you're in a bull to bear market reversal. So it's basically a long-term trend change oscillator that uses the weighted moving average of the 11-month moving average and the 12-month moving average uh, to discern whether or not medium and long-term price action are turning higher or turning lower. And obviously when they're turning higher, it's a bear to bull reversal. And when it's turning lower, it's a bull to bear reversal. So that is the, the Copic curve. And again, it oscillates around zero. And when it goes from negative to positive, bear to bull transition, positive to negative, bull to bear transition. That's what oscillators are. <laughs> so that's the, that's the Copic curve. It's a typical Copic curve. And what it is, is it's the 10-month weighted moving average of the 11-month uh, uh, price close and the 14-month price close. Now, what people have done is they, because the guy came up with the parameters because he went to a priest and the priest said, you know, it takes 11 to 14 months to get over somebody dying. So kind of random, kind of random. So what a lot of people have done since and a lot of technical strategists have done is they've modified the Copic curve with, you know, parameters that make more sense, not just 11 and 14 months because a priest said so. But what if we did, you know, five months and eight months or 15 months and 18 months or seven months and eight months and we take different moving average. So People have done different parameters with this. In any event, there, there is one kind of widely accepted parameter modification of the Copic curve signal uh, that has an infallible track record of calling veritable reversals. And that signal just flashed a buy trigger last month that the veritable transition is underway according to this modified Copic curve uh, signal. And this called the end of the uh, great financial crisis. It was the all clear signal after the great financial crisis. It was the all clear signal after the dot-com crash. It was the all clear signal after the 1990s market crash, after Black Friday, 1987-88. This has been the all clear signal every single time for when bear market turned into bull market and it just flashed. So I think it's a really powerful indicator. It adds to a long and growing list of technical price-based momentum indicators that are saying, listen, you may be hearing a lot of negative stuff in the media, a lot of negative stuff from, from the news, a lot of negative stuff online, but the price action in stocks is exceptionally 
positive. You know, we had the, the triple barrel the buy signal that I called the, the, the mm-hmm. thrust signals, which is the breakaway momentum thrust signal, the triple 70 thrust signal, and the Whaley breadth thrust signal. All those happened on the exact same day back in January. We talked about it on this podcast. You have this one now, the Coppic curve signal. You have the fact that stocks posted two consecutive quarterly gains. They rose in the fourth quarter of 2022, and they rose in the first quarter of 2023. That always means the end of bear markets. Never before in a bear market have stocks rallied for two consecutive quarters and then gone on to make new lows. Hasn't happened. So you're seeing all of these technical signals fire. You have the super golden cross, which we kind of came up with our proprietary golden cross signal, which is not just when the 50 crosses above the 200, but the 50 crosses above the 200 and stays above it for several weeks. When that happens after a long bear market, that's always signaled the end of the bear market. So all of these price-based technical momentum indicators are flashing bull market is here signals. And that's important because right now we have this tug war between what these technicals are saying and what a lot of the fundamentals are saying. Inflation remains sticky, Fed still hiking rates, economy is slowing, labor market's about to weaken. But if you think about it, what is price supposed to be? Price is supposed to be a discounting mechanism on Wall Street, right? Price is supposed to look into the future, discount future fundamentals into the into the current price. So we have a tug of war between what's happening right now and something that's supposed to be discounting what's happening right now and what's going to happen next. The tug of war between technicals and fundamentals, at least at this point in time, feels like technicals are, are, are going to win. So I think you want to follow those price-based indicators. I mean, if it was just one or two, okay. But it's dozens at this point, dozens of you know 90% to 100% accurate technical indicators calling the end of bear markets have flashed uh, in 2023. And you got to pay attention to that. You have to pay respect to all those indicators and say, maybe, just maybe, when it looks like the world is ending is the time, the perfect time to buy. And that's that's kind of where we find ourselves right now. And the Coppic curve is is a microcosm of that. All right. Uh, well, moving on to sectors, uh, I want to start with the EV sector. Tesla, Rivian, Lucid, Fisker. Uh, there's been a flurry wow. of new regulations over the past two weeks that you could say entirely reshaped the, this industry. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more mm-hmm. about these new regulations and what it's going to mean for EV stocks? Right. So the first, of course, the EV tax credits, right? Um, Basically, you know, when we this industry first got started, the U.S. incentivized every single. They really want to incentivize electric vehicle purchases, so every single EV got a tax credit, basically a seventy five hundred dollar tax credit, because they just wanted people to buy EVs. They didn't care, you know, where the EVs were made, where they came from, who was making them. They just wanted people to buy electric vehicles. So every vehicle got the seventy five hundred dollar tax credit. Doesn't matter what EV you buy, you get seventy five hundred off. You get a right seventy five hundred off. Okay, great, fantastic. But now the EV industry, it has momentum. It's growing on its own. It's gaining weight. It's 10% of global of US auto sales last year. So this industry can and well, and you know, all the automakers are shifting there. Consumer preferences are shifting there. So the industry has enough momentum that it can sustain it without just throwing tax credits at every single vehicle. So the US Treasury Department came through and said, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not just going to throw 7,500 bucks to every single EV. Instead, we're going to pay attention to and I think this is good, pay attention to where electric vehicles are made. This is a made in America push. So what, they're, what they've done is they've taken that $7,500 tax credit and broken it down into two components, $3,750, $3,750. You get $3,750 if the EV battery components are made in America. You get $3,750 if the EV itself is made in America. So basically, if you have a fully made in America electric vehicle from where the battery minerals are sourced to you know where it's produced and finished, fully made in America or, you know, asterisk fully made in a country with which the U.S. has a free trade agreement. So an allied nation, right? If it's fully made in America, an allied nation, then it gets the full $7,500 tax credit. But if it's not, it doesn't get zip, gets nothing, right? So that's a huge shift because a lot of automakers were not really transparent about where they were making their cars. Because guess what? We were making a lot of them in China. We were getting a lot of materials from China. We were making a lot of batteries in China. I think 80% of, of all EV batteries are made in China. So 
There was a lot of production happening in China that was then coming to the U.S. A big thing that the U.S. didn't want is, okay, we want to shift EVs. We don't want to shift EVs and be entirely reliant on China for our supply chain for EVs because that makes us entirely reliant on China. Bad. They don't want that. So the U.S. government, I think, very smartly said, okay, we're still going to give tax credits, but only to uh, EVs that are basically fully made in America. So not only are they incentivizing consumers to buy EVs, but they're incentivizing auto manufacturers to make those EVs in America and not build supply chains reliant on China. I think it's a really smart move, but it does reshape the industry, right? So Rivian's cars, for example, R1C and R1S, U.S. Treasury Department just said, zip, they don't get any tax credit under the, under these new laws, okay? They get no tax credit. That's 7,500 bucks out the door on a $70,000 purchase. That, that, that's, that's material. That's 10%, right? That, that's material. Uh, Tesla's most popular selling model, the standard range model three, lowest cost option, most popular option. That is only um, eligible for a 3750 of the, the 7,500 tax credits, only half of it. Um, Volvo's uh, big EV, zip, nothing. Uh, the Volkswagen ID4, very popular EV, zip, nothing. BMW's EVs, zip, nothing. Um, Audi's EVs, zip, nothing. So a lot of EVs just lost their tax credit, 7,500 to zero or 7,500 to 37.50. What I think that's going to, what's going to happen then, of course, is these companies are going to re, uh, configure their supply chains to start building cars in America. And that's going to help the U.S. economy. And it's all going to be fine in the long run. But in the short term, it does mean there's probably going to be a sales shift among consumers away from cars that don't qualify for these tax credits to cars that do fully qualify for these tax credits. A lot of Ford and GM EVs do fully qualify for these tax credits, right? Those are the American automakers. They make sure their supply chains are American based. They're going to get the full 7,500. So I think you're going to get a big shift here. And that could impact the stock prices of Rivian, Fisker, Lucid, Tesla, Ford, GM, Volkswagen in the short term. And I think the big relative winners here are actually Ford and GM. You know, they're just beginning their electrification pursuits. And now they have tax credits that the other folks don't. So that, that could really help them in the short term, Ford and GM, in my opinion. In the short term, do you see these uh, companies that don't qualify restructuring their prices at all? To uh, not not re- I, I think they're just going to reconfigure their supply mm-hmm. chains. I mean, it depends on a company by company basis, but like you know, Rivian that's a premium price vehicle, seventy k and up. You know, that's I don't think they're going to reconfigure their prices in the short term. Um, BMW, Audi, also premium EVs. I I don't see that happening. Uh, Volkswagen, maybe we'll, we'll have to see. Um, it kind of depends where you fall on the price spectrum, but if you're on a more price sensitive basis, you probably do think about readjusting prices. If you're not, then I don't think you really think about it all that much. No impact demand. Now, the reason I don't think it really is a big deal for Rivian, uh, is because demand's not the issue here in the short term. Demand will be an issue in the long term. So you got to talk about demand over the next three to five years. But I don't think what happened right now impacts the demand outlook over the next three to five years. Because again, like I said, these companies are going to reconfigure supply chains, but they're all going to get the tax credits in the long run. So I don't think it, it impacts three to five year demand outlook. And in fact, three to five year demand outlook across the board is improving because of B, the second part of legislation that is getting passed or has been proposed, which are new tailpipe regulations by the EPA that aim to reduce carbon emissions, uh, fleet emissions, fleet carbon emissions, uh, by 75% into 2032. So I think we're at something like 330, 340, 350 uh, grams of carbon dioxide per mile driven right now. Those are the, the fleet emission standards and not fleet emission, the fleet emission averages today. EPA came out and said, we want that to go down to 80 by 2032. And, and the belief there is that by instituting these new tailpipe regulations, the adoption of electric vehicles will go from 10% today to 60% by 2030. Previous target was 50%. So the long-term adoption target is moved up 10 percentage points uh, by 2030. That means the long-term demand outlook for all of these companies is significantly improving. So again, long-term demand, I do not think is a problem. Uh, what is a problem in the short term for a lot of these EV startups is supply. Can they make the car? So that's what I think for Rivian and Lucid and Fisker. I don't think these tax credits are, are really all that meaningful because they're going to reconfigure in the long term. They're going to get the tax credits and then they're going to get the demand. That's fine. In the short term, it's all about supply. Can they build the car? So that's how you still have to judge um, Rivian, Lucid, Fisker. Can they make cars? Can they make the amount of cars they say they're going to make and fulfill the demand, the huge backlog of demand that they have on their books? 
That's the question. Gotcha. Do any of these new regulations impact other clean energy stocks, solar stocks, hydrogen, energy storage? And while we're at it, let's get a pulse check on fan favorite fluence. Uh, no, these new regulations don't really impact those industries outside of the fact that they underscore a big commitment to one, the clean energy revolution, the energy transition, and two, making sure the energy transition is uh, kind of a circular economy. So we're not reliant on China. We're not reliant on Russia. We're not reliant on a lot of other countries. We're reliant on ourselves. So th those are the two commitments that have been underscored by recent legislation. And I don't think that impacts solar stocks, uh, dramatically energy storage stocks dramatically outside of the fact that they're going to also reconfigure their supply chains to make them make sure that they aren't sourcing too much from China. And I think that's, that's already been happening for several months because they've had their own series of, of regulations that have uh, regulatory problems that have come up over the past, you know, 12 to 24 months, which have prompted a preemptive shift of, of supply chains in those industries. So I think that that shift's already underway. Fan favorite fluences had a very strong comeback. Uh, got technically way oversold and, in our opinion, fundamentally undervalued. And it's had a very strong bounce back from those undersold and overvalued levels. And I, the uptrend in the stock remains intact. It just got really undersold to the lower end of that uptrend. And now it's coming back. So I think this this rally does persist. It's a long-term favorite of mine. I think that stock can, you know, go three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times from current levels over the next uh, three to five years. So I, I would just, it's a stock that I would continue to buy on dips, buy on dips, buy on dips, buy on dips, buy on dips. You know, there's a clear technical channel forming. You can draw it on your own little stock chart, buy it when it gets to the bottom of that channel and just keep doing that. And that, that's a strategy I would employ with, uh, with fluence for now. Okay. Uh, elsewhere, I've heard rumors that Lululemon is trying to sell mirror. Is this the end of at home fitness trend? And where do you stand on Peloton stock these days? Yeah, I mean, remember we used to talk about Peloton quite a bit on these <laughs> in these podcasts, and uh, yeah, is, is at home fitness dead? So Lululemon is trying to sell Mirror, and that's crazy because they you know doled out an insane amount of money for Mirror in 2020. They thought it was gonna be their next big leg of growth. It's done absolutely nothing, and now they're trying to sell it. Is this the end of at-home fitness? Listen, the at-home fitness industry is forever going to be niche, but it's forever going to be a thing, okay? People who have at-home fitness equipment are going to continue to have at-home fitness equipment. They're going to continue to pay all their software, subscription, and services fees. And I think you're going to continue to – the marketing continue to grow at a very small but steady rate, 3 5 6 7 8% over the next several years because you are going to get growth through um, – international expansion. You're going to get uh, no churn among the current subscriber base. And I think you're going to get growth through um, lower price products, uh, increasing penetration into um, lower income uh, homes. And so I think that the at-home fitness industry, no, it's it's not dead, but it's not booming either. It's not going to, you know, gyms aren't going anywhere. They are going to forever remain a thing, but so is at-home fitness. So the share of the pie that it's eating up of the fitness category is very, it's very gradual eating away. And so that's why I think it's a three to 8% growth industry over the next several years with mirror with respect to mirror. I just think that's a horrible product. I mean, it's, it's not just the fact that the Adam fitness industry didn't grow the way it was supposed to grow. Mirror is just a crappy product. <laughs> I mean, it's a crappy product in an industry that's not growing very quickly. So crappy products and in industries growing very quickly can grow because the whole industry, you know, growing super fast. So everything is growing 20%. And that's kind of what happened in 2020, that every at-home fitness product, you know, grew like wildfire. But of course, Mir wasn't going to survive. I mean, look at what else is out there. Peloton, I think it's a great product. It's a fantastic. The business was very poorly run, very poorly run, mismanaged through the pandemic, after the pandemic. But that is a fantastic product. Ask, I don't own a Peloton, full disclosure, but I know a lot of people that do. Ask anyone that, oh, do you own I a do Peloton? I don't own a Peloton, no. But I, again, I, same thing. Friends that use it swear by it. Ask anyone that uses it, they love it. I'm sure their net promoter score is like 100. I mean, they're, people love their Pelotons. They're addicted to their Pelotons. People love the Peloton, okay? So that's a fantastic product. The treadmill did get off to a rough start because of, of, of some unfortunate circumstances, but it's also a great product. Okay, so Peloton makes a great product 
in that meh industry. Tonal, we own a Tonal. Fantastic product. Fantastic product. Great product in a meh industry. Mirror, what the? Yeah. Horrible product in a meh industry. Of course it's going to fail. So of course we're going trying to sell it off. So what do I think of the at-home fitness industry? Well, I think there are actually going to be some opportunities emerging because people are throwing away the baby with mm-hmm. the bathwater. Peloton is a fantastic product. New management is executing strongly. Costs have been reduced. I think that stock is pretty interesting here. I think that stock, I don't, I don't know if it's ready for a comeback right now with the economy being kind of wobbly, but I do think for a long-term investor, the three to five-year outlook, Peloton stock at current levels looks pretty appetizing because you have a great product that's going to continue to grow at a solid rate. And you have to remember, they don't need to add new bikes and new homes to sustain big growth because their growth narrative is the software and mm-hmm. services side of things. People are paying, what is it, 50 bucks a month just to gain access to the classes. They can hike those prices. People aren't going to quit. People are not going to quit. You could take the people love the Peloton so much. You could take that $50 subscription price, make it a hundred bucks. You're going to get 2% of people quitting. People love their Peloton. So the growth there to bears on the software side of things, that's a high margin business. The OPEX space has been gutted. New management knows how to streamline, knows how to get that cost base down. This is a company that probably returns to profitability pretty soon. I think that stock is really interesting here. I really do. Because again, people are throwing the baby out with the bathwater in the at-home fitness category, but at-home fitness does have its, does have staying power in the global economy. And Peloton is a fantastic product with a new management team that is finally growing the right way and the stock is pretty cheap. So what do I think of Peloton stock here? I think it's interesting. I think it's very interesting. All right. Uh, moving along, housing market data continues to come in strong. Still bullish? Yes, 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 yes. Housing starts today came in better than expected. Building permits a little bit weaker than expected, but still up. Um, was it yesterday or last week? Got to get my days confused now. Um, the NHAB Home Builders Sentiment Index bounced up to a 45 from 44. Very strong reading. You know, the rebound that you're seeing in the Home Builder Sentiment Index, and that's really the best composite metric of the housing market, um, is rebounding in a manner consistent with the start of new big uptrends in the housing market that it dropped to 30, which is a really low level and has rebounded strongly off that super low level. Every time home builder sentiment has done that dropped two or below 30 and then rebounded strongly from those ultra depressed levels. It was the start of a new housing bull market that lasted for years. So again, pattern recognition, history tends to rhyme. I think we're seeing history rhyme right now and we're getting the start of a new pretty big, uh, upturn in, in, the, in the housing market. Uh, treasury yields are moving higher, so that should impact mortgage rates negatively. Mortgage rates should be should push higher over the next few weeks. That'll probably impact short-term demand trends, but I think medium-long-term demand trends going into summer and the end of the year are going to be up and to the right, and that's going to continue what has been a, or support what has been a really strong rally in housing stocks. I think that continues for the rest of the year. Uh, okay, and a sector that we haven't talked about in a while, psychedelics. Uh, I want to ask because I just saw that Hawaii approved a new committee to research the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics. Feels like that the legal dominoes are starting to fall pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, psychedelics, and it's a really underrated industry, really underrated. I mean, I think the entire future mental health care is going to be built on top of psychedelic inspired treatments. And the research that the unique thing about this is that. Normally, when a new drug comes to the forefront, right, we have to wait for FDA trials to know if that new drug works. But because psychedelics have been around forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, we know they work. We know psychedelics work to improve mental health situations, depression, anxiety, ADHD, um, PTSD, things of that nature. We know psychedelics work. So we were really unique situation from the investment property from the investment perspective with psychedelic stocks that they're biotech stocks. And yes, we have to see if their drugs actually pass trials, but the risk of them passing is significantly reduced because we know the core ingredient of those drugs works. How can you not love that risk reward setup? You get all the potential upside of you know, you know, massive FDA approval, new drug, rewrites the mental health care landscape, yet the risks are significantly reduced because again, you know the core ingredient works. There's tons of data showing it works, tons of academic research, academic literature showing it works. Just research goes back 60, 70 years. In fact, there's what was it? There was no oh God. 
There's a theory out there, and I just read about it. Now I'm forgetting it. Forgetting what the name of the theory is and what the, the person was that pioneered it. But the idea is that the reason humans became humans is because of, of mushrooms. That humans were just apes, right? We were just monkeys. And how do you go from, from apes into, into human? Um, the theory is that, well, a certain set of apes started eating mushrooms, which increased their mental capacities and allowed them to start doing human-like things. And that branch of ape became it's human. It's the branch of ape that started. There you go. That's so you heard of it just before. It you just looked it up. <laughs> yeah, so it, 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 it's a thing. I need I need to do more research into it because I, I I just came across it one day and was like, that's pretty interesting. And I bookmarked it to read more about it and then got busy with other things. <laughs> but now that you brought it up, it, it reminded me that that's it's just there is a lot of really smart people that swear by this stuff. And I think it is going to transform mental health care uh, over the next you know, 10 years. And the sooner, the better, because mental health care is a really debilitating uh, disease, both economically and, and socially. So it would be fantastic if we could get you know, a drug that actually works in the market, help people save lives and you know, allow new biotech startups to uh, become titans in this industry. I, I, I love the investment proposition there. And I love the, the social proposition. I, I think it's a really, really good thing that this movement is progressing in the manner that it has. And yes, to touch back on Hawaii, Hawaii did just approve a committee to research this stuff. They, you know, one of, a, I don't know, about a dozen states that has such a committee. Um, you know, we're getting decriminalization uh, legislation across multiple states. So, yes, the legal dominoes are also falling there. And I believe the social stigmas against it are being completely removed. I, I got to tell you, in California, shrooms are the new cannabis. Um, it used to be people would, you know, go and smoke cannabis before they went out or, you know, go over to a friend's house and, and, and smoke weed and you hang out like that. That was kind of like the, the kid thing to do. Well, based on people I'm talking to, full disclosure, I don't smoke weed. I don't do shrooms. I'm, I'm very drug free, very drug free at this household. But, um, you know, I know people that, that, are, that are experimenting with, with different things. And in those circles that I'm aware of, shrooms have completely replaced cannabis and cannabis is completely on the decline and shroom recreational usage is, is rising significantly. So I think that it's, uh, I don't know, the social stigmas are being removed and that's a very necessary component for this to become a legitimate national mental health care treatment. All right. Uh, moving on to our last topic. How about India? Uh, Luke, you've been bullish on India as a winner in the re-globalization movement. Apple just reported some pretty big Indian numbers. Should we be investing in India? Wait, yeah, what did Apple just report? I wrote that down the other day. Yeah, Apple revenues rose 50% year over year last year to $6 billion in India. So yeah, massive growth in India. Apple's reshifted India. So everyone was talking about deglobalization. That ain't happening. We've talked about that. It ain't happening. It's not deglobalization. It's reglobalization. It's getting your supply chains out of Russia and out of China and into countries you can trust more. India parts of Africa, maybe parts of the Middle East. There's part just parts of the world you can trust more than China and Russia. So you're and Mexico is actually winning a lot of this as well. So you're seeing a reshifting of supply chains, not back to America, but back to, you know, allied nations. Again, the big asterisk on the EV tax credits was made in America asterisk or made in a country with a free trade agreement with America. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, people are going to the asterisk mm -hmm. part of that agreement. Um so I think India is a big winner in the reglobalization movement. I do believe that India stocks have been trending higher. They look very relatively strong. And I think that continues. I think the economic boom you had in China in the 2010s, because America and Europe moved a lot of their supply chains into China, that same boom can now happen in India. So in China, we got the emergence of the Chinese Facebook of the Chinese Spotify, of the Chinese Netflix, of the Chinese Amazon, right? We got those Chinese Google. We got those companies. Are we going to get in the 2020s the Indian Facebook, the Indian Amazon, the Indian Netflix, the Indian, are we, Indian Google? Are we going to get those? Probably not to that extent because there's not a firewall around India like there is around China, which prevents the U.S. companies from getting in there. But 
we probably will get, you know, because just because of the, the regional differences, the cultural differences, the distance from America to India, you're probably going to get the emergence of at least, you know, many Indian Facebook, many Indian Amazon, many Indian um, uh, Spotify, Netflix, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that there is potential for some pretty interesting investment opportunities in India in the 2020s. And that's definitely an area that I'm looking into pretty closely right now. Okay. Well, that covers all of our topics this week, but we have one great fan question from Stephen Polk. If Walmart was to buy Symbotic, what would this mean for shareholders? Oh, Symbotic. I tried not to talk about them this week <laughs> simply because we talked about them a lot and I like to, to diversify a little bit. But yes, um, if Walmart were to buy Symbotic, you know, probably a takeout at around $40 a share. Maybe that's just a random guess price that I have. I don't really know what the takeout off would be, but it has to be pretty high. It would have to go to a shareholder vote and shareholders would, would vote for it. They, they, if the premium was big enough, shareholders would probably vote yes. And um, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd, what would it mean for shareholders? It, with symbolic stock, you just, you just buy it and you hold it and you can sell it on, on local peaks and you can buy a little bit more on local bottoms. Uh, listen to technicals. Like I said, remember last week we talked about it. I said, you know, if you're holding a lot, maybe sell a little bit here because it's really extended and off the moving average Buy it when it comes back to 50 days. So you can definitely trade in and out of it like that on partial positions, but you want to keep a bulk core position in Symbotic because either it's one going to go higher in the long term because it's going to keep winning contracts and keep automating warehouses of all sorts across America or two, it's going to get bought out by Walmart. So this stock is going to 35, 40, 45, 50. How is it going to get there? How soon is it going to get there? That's the question mark, but it's going up. And so I think you just want to continue to have that core position and establish it, trade in and out on local peaks and local bottoms, but have that core position and ride the automation wave higher with Symbotic. All right. Well, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. Luke, do you have any last words before we wrap today? Yeah, you know, Aaron, I'm just um, getting really optimistic. And I have been, as you know, all year long about the stock market, but when you have a fundamental thesis and you build that thesis from a contrarian perspective, you don't really get to hang your hat on price action supports this thesis because you're calling for price action to change course, to reverse. So what has happened in the markets, you can't really say this is support for my claim or proof of my claim. But once you're three to four months into that contrarian thesis and things are playing out the way that you expected, then you can start to hang your hat on price action and say, look, this is exactly what's happening. And it's just beginning. Every indicator I'm looking at says it's just beginning. Well, that's, that's where we are today. And that's why I am really bullish because we did have what seemed like a very contrarian and ostensibly very stupid thesis coming into 2023 that stocks were going to boom this year. A lot of people are like, what are you smoking over there, Luke? What are you smoking? That's crazy. Stocks got crushed. Inflation's running high. Fed's hiking rates. Recession around the corner. No way stocks boom in 2023. Yet here we are four months in, and they are booming in 2023, especially tech stocks, which is exactly what we said was going to happen. Tech and growth, we're going to have a massive comeback rally. Four months into the year, that's exactly what's happened. So now with this contrarian thesis that we have, which we still believe in, we can now hang our hat on the price action, which you know when the price is moving in your, in your favor, in your direction, yeah, you feel like you got a little bit more pep in your step. You got a little bit more confidence in your talk. You, you, you feel good about it. You're not just talking the talk. You can walk the walk a little bit. So that's where a lot of my confidence, our confidence is coming from these days because we had this contrarian thesis that, again, seemed to a lot of people completely out of touch four months ago, yet today is backed by an overwhelming uh, amount of price data, price evidence. So that's why we're really excited. And we think this thesis does continue to play out and that it's creating a really, really great buying opportunity. And that is exactly why, you know, you highlighted it at the, uh, the top of this podcast. We have put together this special report, you know, five stocks to buy for this big rebound, for this coming wave of stock market gains powered by disinflation, powered by a Fed pause, powered by economic reset, 
economic restabilization powered by lower treasury yields, powered by all the things that worked against stocks in 2022 are not going to work for them in 2023. What stocks should you be buying? So that's why we put together that special report, the five stocks to buy. And I think you said it's, it's somewhere in the link below. I don't know if people are watching this YouTube or whatever. There, there's some link somewhere on your screen you can buy and get to that report. If I were you, I would click it because I think it can be a pretty valuable resource for you going into the uh, into the summer. Yes, absolutely. And it is free. And we want to thank everybody for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and always see if you can answer any of your burning questions. Once again, for even more of Luke's hypergrowth insights, check out our free report, Five Hypergrowth Stocks to Buy in 2023, available by clicking the link above or in the description below. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Until then, bye all.